May I invite you now to open your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the book of Romans as we continue our series through this book. And at chapter six, we enter not the twilight zone, but some, <laughs> something that is, uh, I don't know where these thoughts come from. So I think I know where that one came from. Uh, smells like sulfur. But um, there are certain chapters in the Bible that historically have been challenging. And I would say that there's no chapter more challenging than Romans chapter 6. This past week I probably read over 300 pages on the passage we're looking at. And you asked me, well, how are you after doing that? And I would say pretty confused. You, you can't find two people who agree on what this passage means. But I think I found a way through, and I'm so excited to preach it because I think it'll be very helpful for all of us that we can have hope uh, in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, is doing, and will do in our hearts. So here now, the word of the Lord, as we look at the verse, seven verses of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for Romans chapter 6. We know that it's in the canon because it's truth. Truth we need. Truth we need to understand and grasp the implications of it and to see it worked into the daily fabric of our lives. So we pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired this word would give both the one who speaks and the one who hears spiritual power to understand it and benefit from it to bring glory to the one who is alone worthy, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. Now last week I preached a sermon on grace based upon Romans chapter 5. And when you preach upon grace like that, people always get an uneasy feeling, I find. They sort of say, don't you think that's a little out of ba balance? You're sort of leaving me with the impression that there's absolutely nothing we do uh, and that this thing called grace is, you know, we're just going to be grace people and walk around and not care about how anybody lives 
not be concerned about personal holiness, not be concerned about deliverance from sin. I mean, pastor, you preach grace, you preach grace, you preach grace. What am I supposed to do? Well, number one, you're to believe it. But number two, you need to understand that chapter 5 is primarily about the benefits of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, which we neither earn or achieve but receive through the, passively through the hand of faith. But the same faith that justifies us is the same faith that sanctifies us. Our union with Christ of course, brings with it the benefits we're united to the whole Christ who is both Savior and Lord. And so as a result of that, our union with him, our organic connection to him, enabled by the Holy Spirit, works its way out in our lives in something called sanctification. Justification is being declared objectively to be right with God. Sanctification is the work of God in your soul, infusing into you the grace of God and changing you from one degree of the glory to another by the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, grace is wonderful, but we have to understand the whole picture of the gospel. And so Paul anticipates this objection. One of my favorite preachers is David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And someone asked him one time after a Sunday evening service at Westminster Chapel, they asked him, why have you not ever preached through the book of Romans? And Dr. Lloyd-Jones looked at the man and said, I will when I understand chapter 6. Well, apparently he thought he understood chapter 6 because he spent 14 years, 14, preaching through Romans. I'm not going to do that. I don't know if I have 14 years left to live. But he said, until I understand Romans chapter 6. But Paul has talked in chapter 5, and I, I want to be sure we set this passage in its context because that is of utter importance. The apostle has been painting an idyllic picture of the people of God. Having been justified by faith, we are standing in grace and rejoicing in, the, in anticipation of glory. Having formerly belonged to Adam, the author of sin and death, we now belong to Christ, the author of salvation and life. Although at one point in the history of Israel, the law was added to increase sin, yet grace increased all the more so that grace might reign. It is a splendid vision of the ultimate triumph of grace. Against the grim background of human guilt, Paul depicts grace increasing and reigning. But is that picture unbalanced? In his concentration on the secure status of the people of God, he has said little or nothing about the Christian life or growth or the call to discipleship. He seems to have jumped straight from justification in chapter 5 to glorification without any intervening stage of sanctification. By this omission so far, he has exposed himself to misrepresentation by his critics. His critics, of course, are the law-centered Judaizers, the Jews who believe the law was essential not only for sanctification but also for justification. They had already said 
or slanderously misquoted him as saying, let us do evil that good may result. At that point, he dismissed their charge. But here, uh, and he didn't answer it. Now, however, as they rally to attack, he refuses their slander. That is what Romans chapter 6 is about. That is the theme and the topic. What was their criticism? It was not that Paul's gospel of justification by grace through faith without works seemed to make uh, the doing of the good works irrelevant. Worse than that, it seemed to stimulate people into sin more than ever. For if his understanding of Israel's story, the law, led to an increase of sin, and sin led to an increase of grace, then logically... In our story, too, we should increase our sinning in order to give God the chance to increase his gracious forgiving. That's how they understood what Paul was saying. Oh, you mean if sin abounds, grace superabounds, therefore I can be an antinomian. Therefore I can say, freed from the law, O oh blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. As one wise wag put it, I like to sin, God likes to forgive, isn't the world wonderfully arranged? That is not, and the Apostle Paul reacts almost viscerally, emotionally. Our text is sort of upper middle class when it says by no means. Paul says, not just no, I'm going to be nice here, heck no. Absolutely not. Are you out of your minds? Here's the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. While the gospel is free grace coming to us, the gospel uh, is something that has happened outside of us, something accomplished for us, but the gospel also has implications for life inside of us, and it's something God does in us called sanctification. You can't have one without the other. You cannot say, I'm justified, if at in the very same moment you're saying, I am being sanctified. They can be distinguished but not separated. They come together. As John Calvin used to say, when you receive Christ, you receive the whole Christ. The Christ who is the Savior, but the Christ who is also the Lord. One with authority over you. One who has given himself for you. But he wants to purify unto himself a people filled with the fruits of godliness. And so Paul is responding to this particular response of his audience. He anticipates they were thinking this, and so they put it in the form of a question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? They were implying that Paul's gospel of free grace actually encouraged lawlessness and put a premium on sin because it promised sinners the best of both worlds. They could indulge themselves freely in the world without any fear of forfeiting the next. The technical term for people like that is the term antinomian. Anti, if I'm anti-something, it means I'm against it. The Greek word for law is nomos. So an antinomian is a person who is against the law of God. And antinomianism has reared its ugly head in all of history. Basically, antinomianism makes the same mistake that legalism does in that both abuse the grace of God, but in different ways. 
And so they had set themselves against the moral law according to how they heard Paul. Paul is here to correct that. While recognizing antinomianism in others, we must not be allowed to conceal its ugly presence in ourselves. Have we never caught ourselves making light of our sin and our failure on the ground that God will excuse and forgive us of those things? You all know the saying, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. How often do we indulge in that? How often do we turn the grace of God into lasciviousness? The grace of God is to purify our hearts. Paul answers his critics in that God's grace not only forgives sins, but delivers us from sinning. For grace does more than just justify us, it sanctifies us. And so grace through faith is the way we're justified. Grace through faith is the way we're sanctified. One is a work taking outside, taking place outside of us. It's legal, it's positional, it's juridical, it's a declaration God makes over us that counts forever. But there is an internal work of the grace of God inside of us where God begins to make us righteous personally. Moral change is possible as a Christian. Now, do we make progress in the Christian life? You're scared to say yes, aren't you? <laughs> you better be. Do we? Am I Tim Posey now? I received Christ at 19 years of age. Am I, have I seen any moral change in my life? Of course I have. Of course I have. Not by my own doing, but by the doing of Christ in me. Working in me, as Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. But his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Why? Because I labored more abundantly than all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And so Paul understands the mind of his critics. He anticipates the mind of his critics. He knows what they're going to say before they know what they're going to say. And how can Paul do this? Because Paul was one of them. Okay? He was a Pharisee according to the law, he says, blameless. Paul understood how that kind of mindset worked. And he knew that when he taught in Romans 5 the absolute beauty and glory and joy and freedom of free grace, these people were going to overreact. The knee-jerk reaction to grace is always what? Give me some law. You know, when, <laughs> when you get grace, you recognize you're not in control anymore. That's hard to take for most of us. Don't you like to be in control? Am I the only one? I don't think so. We all like to be in control, and grace sort of just stuns us. Truly understood, it just stuns us. But grace is both that which justifies us and that which sanctifies us. Now, what's this got to do with Romans 3, much, or 6? <laughs> much in every way. And so Paul continues to say that the two halves of Romans 6 exalt the grace of God as it works in our being. Luther 
Uh, oddly enough, not for Luther though, uh, he said, Do you, uh, he, in talking about baptism, which Paul does in verse 3, which we're going to focus on in a minute, he says, we have lost touch with the richness of the sacraments that God has given to his people. Luther used to say, when the devil would tempt him, get away from me, I'm baptized. Baptism is not what saves us, but in our baptism, God gives us a tangible sign of his promise of redemption. All the processes that are wrought through the redeeming work of Christ are contained in that sign. Baptism is a sign of being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It also does not affect regeneration. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration here. But it's a sign of regeneration. It is the sign of God's promise that all who believe will in fact be justified. It is a sign of our sanctification. It is a sign of our being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is a sign of our glorification. It is a sign of our identification with Christ. We are in Christ and he is our champion. Now, I'm just going to run ahead here for a second and tell you the, the thing that floored me this week in studying this passage, because I have preached through Romans 6, I can't tell you the number of times. But what struck me between the eyes is the way you correct people's understanding of the gospel, especially in reference to an antinomian lifestyle, is to teach them to understand their baptism. Wow. Wow. Who knew? <laughs> to teach us how to draw the implications we should draw from our baptism. Now, when the word baptism comes up, you know what most people do. Well, you know, I'm glad Romans 6 is in the Bible because you Presbyterians need that verse. You need to understand what Romans 6 says about baptism. And I laugh and smile and said, I've been on both sides of that fence. I used to use Romans 6 in that way. But I have to tell you, after much study, I'm absolutely convinced that if you think Romans 6, 3 is about arguing over the mode or the subjects of baptism, you need help. That is not what this passage is about. Not at all. Not even close. And so, one of the great things in exegeting a text in its context is you begin to see why would Paul immediately go to baptism to, to talk about the reality of our union with Christ. And so, uh, because that's what baptism does. That's what baptism explains to us in great detail. Now, I'm going to have to be patient with myself and not race through this because I got adrenaline pumping and we only got so much time. But let's do it. We've already noted a surprising statistic in Paul's letters. He never describes believers as Christians. For him, the big idea of the gospel is that the believer is in Christ. In the Greek, E-N-N. Christo, Christ. We are united with Christ by faith. That's how Paul describes a true believer. And for Paul, this union with Christ is multidimensional. It has, first of all, eternal dimension. The Bible tells us that God chose us in him, that is, in Christ, 
before the foundation of the world. Think about that, would you? God chose believers in Christ before the foundation of the world, before God spoke the world into existence, we were already chosen to be in Christ. There is a sense in which you can say the whole of Christianity could be summed up with the phrase union with Christ. We are united to him. And that union to him has vast implications. First, it's not only a, an eternal dimension to that union, it is a covenantal and incarnational dimension since in his incarnation Christ was obedient as the second man, the last Adam. It also has what is called an existential or personal dimension since the Holy Spirit brings us into real spiritual bonding with the risen, ascended Lord. Once I become a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, I am baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit penetrates my being, dwells in me, and unites me with the person of Jesus Christ. He is with me. And he is in me, and I am in him. Now, you don't think that would make a difference in a person's life? I mean, my goodness, once you're united to the person of Christ, what an amazing statement to even think about, much less grasp. And so the corollary for Paul is that because we are in Christ, it follows and may be said that with him, in everything he did for us, we are with him. In everything he did for us is our representative and our substitute. We have already seen the relevance of this when we think about the crucifixion of Christ. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. And so the Bible perspective on that is... That's something that's already occurred. Later, we will consider Paul's fullest expansion of this principle. Christ is our life. We died with him. We were buried with him. We were raised from him. We will ultimately ascend with him, and we will appear in glory with him. Christianity is Christ, and a Christian is someone who is united to Christ. And you cannot be united to Christ and love sin. You cannot do that. That violates the law of non-contradiction. You cannot do that. And we are united to Christ by faith. So this union with Jesus Christ is viewed through a wide-angle lens in this passage. Paul also wants to view the same union under a microscope so that we can get a close-up view of its important details. This he provides for us in his magnum opus, the letter to the church at Rome, in particular chapter 6, which we've already read. These are among the most important verses in the whole of Romans. Indeed, the whole of the New Testament. And so, uh, these... Verses, this one passage probably was what Simon Peter had in mind 
when he commented on the writings of our beloved brother Paul that there are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> Peter, an apostle. Peter, uh, a godly man, is not suggesting that Paul is obtruse and a difficult author, rather that the gospel contains truths so profound that they challenge and stretch the best of intellects of all time. And so therefore, it serves us well to give our time to thinking seriously through this passage. And we have to understand that the gospel has many nuances, and it's uh, mind-stretching to grasp them, sometimes counterintuitive to understand them. But... If we are to take seriously the principle that sanctification comes through the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 2, then we will understand that we need to think seriously about this concept of Romans chapter 6 in union with Christ. And this is certainly true of what Paul says here. It would not be claiming too much to say that the church is still trying fully to understand some of the details of his teaching in Romans chapter 6. So there is room here for lifetime of reflection. And we're going to do that today. We'll be here till 3 o'clock no more. No, we're not. So there's room for serious uh, study and uh, recognizing the nuances of the gospel. That is part of the divine plan as we know precisely because life transformation takes place through the ongoing renewal of our mind. I can remember people when I first moved here to Nevada and was trying to plant the church and I remember this particular person who was a charismatic by persuasion looked at me and he said, did you go to cemetery? And I said, well, yeah, I've been a few times. <laughs> I've done a few funerals. And he said, no, that's not what I mean. He said, have you gone to seminary? That's the place that is the cemetery. Like, the Bible doesn't tell us to love God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. So when I quoted that verse to him, he just looked at me and he said, you don't need all that seminary stuff. And I said, I think it better equip me to understand the Bible. You're right. It can be helpful. It can be harmful too. It can hurt you in ways. You think you know everything. Nobody likes to know it all. But it equipped me to try to understand with the best tools available to try to understand what I do when I stand before God's people and preach to them every week because as you know on the day of judgment I will be held accountable for every word I have taught you. The teachers have a more severe judgment before the face of God on judgment day. So I said I thought it would be of some benefit to me to recognize that Christianity does have content. It's not just a feeling. It's more than a feeling. You've heard that song, I guess. <laughs> but it is a feeling, too. So, a major key to the Christian life is to understand this. The foundational significance Paul's teaching here is highlighted by the question he asks. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So what's he saying? He appeals both to the fact of baptism and to its meaning. It is the action by which we were publicly named for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul's teaching here can be something of a challenge for evangelical Christians, especially if we have assumed or been taught that baptism basically is a sign of what we have done, namely, trusted in Christ. Here, as elsewhere, Paul implies that baptism symbolizes not what we have done, but rather what has been done for us. The verb in this verse, baptize, is in the passive voice, not the active voice. We are acted upon. That's why you don't baptize yourself. We are acted upon. We have been baptized into Christ Jesus. It is not something we do ourselves because it does not primarily signify anything we ourselves have done. To understand rightly how baptism functions in our Christian lives, we must first recognize that it points to Jesus Christ and to union with him by faith. It does not point as faith at faith so much as it summons us to faith. Christ himself, and yes, all that faith finds in him, is the point, not primarily what we ourselves have done in coming to faith. Baptism says, look at what is yours by being in Jesus Christ, not look at the faith that I have brought to Christ Jesus. Now, I was a Baptist preacher, and I baptized a lot of people by immersion. I could tell you the story of baptizing a person who weighed 400 pounds. But I won't. <laughs> I will. Uh, there was a person who weighed 400 pounds. And, of course, it became a live issue for me because I had to baptize this person. And I was starting to think, all right, I'm a pretty strong guy, but I've never lifted 400 pounds. So I told them they're going to have to grab hold of me and pull, and I'm going to pull, and we'll see what happens. So I took this person underwater, and water displacement occurred. It's in a baptistry. Choir sitting right in front of the baptistry. I took this person under, whoosh, a tidal wave of water drenched the choir. And the first thought in my head was, maybe sprinkling and pouring has some merit to it. But I baptized this person. I took them under him with all, but the strength of both of us. We got them up. But I noticed that the choir, it was like they were half wet. The back side of them was wet. front side of them was not. I was seeing the back side of all of them. And I laughed because they were wet the rest of the service. This happened like second thing in the service. But see, when we understand the reality of baptism, it's what God has done. It's a picture. It is a sacrament. It is a sign and seal of what God has done for us and says to us, look at what is yours in Christ. 
This is the dynamic and direct direction of the baptismal symbolism. It is of fundamental importance. It is to nourish us in the lifelong way Paul believes it should. I remember reading either in the Book of Church Order or the Westminster Confession or both, that we are to improve upon our baptism, that baptism is to be brought up to us consistently. When we baptize someone, we should encourage the congregation to improve on their baptism. Now, I have to tell you, I read right over that and never thought a thing about it until today and until studying this passage. Because this union with Christ that is symbolized by baptism is everything to the Christian life. There's a further aspect of baptism we need to grasp. Christ has given it to us as a naming ceremony. So, Pastor Tim, you believe in christening? I believe what Jesus said in Matthew 28 19 and 20, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is an important paradox to grasp here. Naming ceremonies do not transform us inwardly, yet they make a lifelong difference to us. Our parents went through a kind of naming ceremony when they registered our birth. They were asked, what is the name of your child to put on the birth certificate? And the naming ceremony did not change us inwardly. Even if it had taken place when we were adults, it still would be true. This naming ceremony had a lifelong impact on us. We hear one or two words and instinctively respond, that's me, that's who I am. And as I have it, the name identifies me and tells me something about who I am. My full name reminds me where I have come from, what privileges I have had, even reminds me of the lifestyle I'm expected to live as a member of my family. I grew up as a posy, P-O-S-E-Y. And there are certain traits about posies that are wonderful. Some not so wonderful. But I grew up in that family, and that family shaped me. My name had something to do with my identity. Had something to do with shaping my character. If this is all true with secular naming ceremonies, how much more significant is the naming ceremony of baptism? For here, we are named for the Trinity. Baptism, therefore, does not so much speak about faith but in faith, and it says the following, you are no longer named, or you are being named for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father has sent his Spirit to unite us to Jesus Christ. In him we are given the rich inheritance of all the gracious resources we will ever need to be brought from sin to salvation, from death to life, and from earth to heaven. In essence, Paul is saying, look at what your baptism pictures. Listen to what your baptism says, and by faith, take hold of its message. Remember what it tells you about who you are in Christ. You ever thought about your baptism that way? You have been named by the Trinity and are a part of that family through union with Christ. 
Like much of Paul's thinking, what he says here is drawn out of his thinking. In this case, the notion that if his claim is true, that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, then we can surely continue to sin that grace may abound. His answer is those who speak like that, and most of us have heard some version of these words, understand neither God's grace nor their baptism. In fact, at bottom, they do not really understand what it means to be a Christian. Certainly they do not grasp what it means to be in Christ. So a solid grasp of the sacrament of baptism has to do with dispelling any antinomian ideations you may hold. Gradually, Paul turns his immediate negative reaction to these people uh, into, and their wrong-headed thinking into a positive exposition. And it contains the following elements. And I'm going to expound a lot. We may not get through the whole of the outline, but that's okay. As a matter of fact, we're getting at a getting off place here pretty soon. Paul says, if we understand our baptism, we would see it is conceivable, a self-contradiction, or inconceivable and a self-contradiction, to think a Christian can simply continue in the old way of life. Baptism tells faith that the old life in Adam has gone, new life in Christ has begun, when I respond to my baptism in faith, it tells me the believer is no, no longer has the same relationship to sin he or she used to have. You are no longer under its dominion as you once were. You have been raised into new life with Jesus. That is why it is inconceivable that you would continue in sin. For in Christ's death and resurrection, the dominion of sin was broken. The new age has dawned. We are part of the new creation. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Indeed, it cannot be true of them. Uh, it is true of them by definition. Excuse me. If this was true of Jesus Christ himself... It is also true of those who are in union with him. Indeed, it cannot be true of them. It is true of them by definition. Paul has his own distinct way of making this point. Follow his reasoning. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You cannot die to something and still be living in it. There is a law of non-contradiction. You cannot be in one and the same sense at one and the same time. You cannot be in one and in the same sense in the other, in the same realm, both dead and alive. Just like you cannot be kind of pregnant. You cannot be kind of married. <laughs> you either are or you're not. Significantly, here Paul does not use the regular pronoun, but a form of which implies that belonging to a category, a specific category, in this instance, Christians belong in a category sharing this defining feature that they are those who have died to sin kind of people. They cannot still belong to the opposite category of those who continue to live under the thraldom and domination of sin. 
that would be an ontological contradiction, an amnesia in relation to our true identity in Christ. This is gospel logic. It is worthwhile laboring the point and, and learning how to think biblically about ourselves. And so I'm going to stop here because we have another Sunday coming. And I've said a lot, but my fundamental point is this. To draw conclusions from the gospel of grace that what someone is preaching. Martin Lloyd-Jones was really famous for saying the following. He said, if nobody's ever accused you of being an antinomian, you probably haven't ever really preached the gospel. Let me repeat that again. I get this charge periodically from people, and when they tell me I'm antinomian, I smile and say, oh, I'm a whole lot worse than that. That's why I need Jesus so much. That's why I needed Jesus to come. That's why I need to be in union with him. I don't mean to laugh it off. It's serious in a way, but it's based on a total illogical, or excuse me, logical, but not gospel logic, kind of thinking to understand what Paul is getting to here. And what he's saying is, Jesus Christ and being united to him will change you inside out. You will never be the same. How do you know your faith is real? How do you know your faith works? You see, the argument over the Reformation about Luther and his gospel was, Luther says we're justified by faith alone. But people didn't keep reading Luther. They should have, but they didn't. And the next sentence was, but the faith that justifies us is not alone. As a matter of fact, Luther said faith is a very living and active thing. It cannot help itself. It incessantly does good works. Do you? Are you new? Are you united to Christ by faith? And has that set the sequence of transformation occurring in your heart? Can you truly say that you hate sin? That you despise sin? You hate it. You don't want it. You don't love sin. You hate it because it destroys your fellowship with the Lord. More than that. It can do more than that to you. But a Christian is someone who has been united to Jesus and you cannot be in union with him and live the way you used to as a consistent pattern of your life. Now next week I'm going to get into some nuances about what it means to be dead in sin. I don't want you to go home worried about this. Are we still tempted to sin? Yes. Do we still fall and fail? Yes. Do the desires to sin come up in our being? Yes. Do we have a demon in our ear often saying stuff to us? Yes. At least I do. But you are dead to sin, meaning you have been taken out of that realm, which is being in Adam, and you have been taken out of that realm and placed into the realm and sphere of Christ, and you're different, and you'll never be the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the book of Romans, but especially for the verses we have looked at today. We do pray 
that your spirit would search our hearts and know us and show us whether we're for real or not, whether we're playing a game or just being religious or trying to be nice people or trying to be respectable and respectful. But do we have the real thing? Are we really united to you by faith? I pray that you would use this word to speak to us and to create in us an overwhelming desire to close with Christ, to trust in his mercy, and then to recognize that we are united to him and his spirit is in us. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who know you and love you and want to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.